Hello, everybody. Welcome to this week's episode of A Disciple's Point of View, and we are starting a new series today called What Does the Bible Say About? And it seems very logical to me that the best way to start this series is what does the Bible say about, well, simply the Bible? What does it say about itself? Why should we even pay attention to this book at all? Um, I'm not going to focus completely on what the Bible says about itself because, of course, that's circular reasoning. We can't sit here and say it's like, you know, well, the Bible claims to be the Word of God, therefore it's the Word of God. Well, there are many religious texts out there in the world today that claim to be the Word of God that I would argue probably aren't the Word of God. Now, probably to it, they're actually not the Word of God. So I'm going to give you some outside proofs, some... I guess you could call them circumstantial proofs. And then I will tell you, though, what the Bible says about itself. So I'm going to give you basically a three-pronged approach. I think the first one that we're going to talk about is going to be the proofs of the Bible. Now, this is stuff that you would look at it kind of from the outside looking in, and you would go, that lends itself to make me believe that this very well could be the Word of God. And I think the very first thing that we can point to is fulfilled Bible prophecy. Some things that basically the Bible has predicted that has come to pass. The most prolific thing that I can think of is going to be fulfilled prophecy about the Messiah, the Christ, Jesus the Christ. And I believe that there are about 300 plus prophecies in the Old Testament that we could point to, some that are minor and some that are not so minor, that would show and indicate that Jesus is indeed the promised Messiah that was to come. And I think the two most prolific is what tribe he would be born from. So a little bit of background to that, if you're unfamiliar, is that the nation of Israel was born out of a singular man who is named Jacob, who is renamed then Israel, one who strives with God, who had 12 sons, and the descendants of Israel are descendants from these 12 sons or the 12 tribes of Israel, okay? So each of these tribes are named after each of these sons, okay, of Israel or Jacob. And one of these sons was named Judah, and in Genesis 49.10, there was a Messianic prophecy that whereby um, Israel was blessing each of the 12 sons. And he said, basically, the scepter shall not depart from Judah. And this was meant to indicate that the promised Messiah that would rule over all of Israel for eternity would come out of the nation, or I should say, rather, the tribe of Judah. That is something, theoretically, Jesus would have no control over, okay? He would have had no control if he was just simply a man. What tribe he was born from? He would just simply have been born. That would have been his circumstance, okay? Obviously, it was orchestrated that way because God decreed it to be so because he allowed it to be uttered from the voice of Israel, which got recorded into the account of Genesis. The next thing is where he would have been born. And that was from the city of Bethlehem. And where that could be located is in Micah chapter 5, verse 2. And basically how Bethlehem was the least of all of the cities in all of the tribe of Judah, right? So it was predominantly inhabited in times past by those who were descendant of the tribe of Judah. And that is where Messiah would have been born. And we see within the gospel accounts that even though 
they settled later on in life into the city of Nazareth that Jesus was indeed born in Bethlehem because the Caesar that was ruling at that time over the Roman Empire of which Israel was basically a captive state under, right, the times of the Gentiles as recorded in Daniel chapter 2 with the vision of the statues, that uh, that Caesar at that time had actually decreed a, a, uh, a census be taken of his whole empire. And basically this caused all of the people of Israel to go back to the city of their ancestry. And Joseph, who is not the actual physical father of Jesus, was rather the custodial or stepfather of Jesus. And Mary also having been a descendant of David, who is of the line and tribe of Judah went back to Bethlehem, which was the city of their lineage, which is where Jesus ended up being born. Two things that Jesus, in theory, would have had no control over if he was just simply a man. But yet there are over 300 plus prophecies that we can point to that show that this is very much the word of God. Everything that is said to have come to pass is coming to pass. The nation of Israel is probably also another glaring example. Ezekiel 37 is probably the most prolific prophecy about how the Jewish people would be regathered into the land that was promised to Abraham and his descendants forever, of which Jacob slash Israel did descend from. He was a descendant of Abraham. He is the father of the Jewish people. The next proof I want to talk about is the unity of the Bible, the overall overarching theme of the Bible basically is that man is fallen from grace. He has fallen from the state that God originally created him to be under and that God is going through and dealing with humanity as time progresses. He has the old covenant with the nation of Israel and then the new covenant was prophesied under the Old Testament writings and the Jewish people largely rejected Jesus as Messiah. So God sent the gospel out into the entirety of the world, whereby the majority of the church, the ecclesia, or the called out ones, are mostly Gentile that are enjoying the new covenant right now. Basically, only partially fulfilling the prophecies of the new covenant within the Old Testament writings because the Jewish people are not largely enjoying the new covenant within the land that God promised to Abraham and his descendants forever, as there are many prophecies about this in the Old Testament. But it's been a consistent theme over 40 human authors over 1,600 years. And basically, this is a book also, and this is my third proof, that Man would not write if he just simply made all this stuff up. And the reasons why is because humans tend to want to put themselves in the most positive light as possible. Even nowadays, you know, whenever, say, on, say, a traffic stop, a police officer pulls somebody over. If you're here in America or in the West listening to this, we have police officers that conduct traffic stops on uh, automobiles as they're driving down the highway. And quite often uh, you'll hear stories about People who just tell white little lies to police officers because they want to basically be seen in the most positive light as possible. And that is a modern day reference. How much more would it be in the Bible if this is something that man had brought up and thought up all on his own? But as we are going to talk about here in just a few minutes, we believe that this is actually inspired of God, that this is the word of 
of God, because this is not something that man would create. He would not put himself in a hopeless state where whereby he is reliant wholly on the mercies of God to save him. He would never do that. He being mankind, he would never want to put paint himself in that light. But the New Testament, especially, man is helpless against God and his wrath unless he puts his faith in Jesus Christ alone to save him and the finished work that Jesus did on mankind's behalf. This is not something man would come up with. Any of the other world religions, even Judaism to an extent, is man striving upwards to God. The new covenant, or under the New Testament writings, is man reaching down to God and reconciling man to himself. This is not something people would come up with because it is not self-glorifying. It goes against the nature of humans everywhere. The fourth proof of the Bible would be the archaeological evidence of the Bible. Now, I'm not going to go into specifics here, but basically I've heard it said that there is typically one thing or a couple things that archaeologists will keep with them, with them rather, and that is a copy of the Bible. Because whenever the Bible talks about something and they find archaeological evidence of it, it tends to back up what the Bible says about whatever archaeological find that they have actually found. Um, they've actually found uh, charred remains of Sodom. Remember Sodom and Gomorrah? How it was supposedly destroyed by God? They have found charred remains now, archaeologically speaking, of that very thing where those cities would have been. Okay, That is just one example. And there are many more that could be talked about. I'm not going to talk about that here because I'm not a, an archaeological evidence, or a, rather, I'm not an archaeological expert. So therefore, you can probably Google that on your own. GotQuestions.org is a great place to go for questions about the Bible that have been answered. And I'm sure that there are uh, examples there that you can look up. Okay. So we're all, next, we're going to talk about the methods of transmission. How did we get this thing called the Bible that we have in front of us right now? So basically, you have to consider up until uh, the year 1436, whenever Johannes Gutenberg created the printing press, how these things were transmitted and recopied is that basically you had scribes that copied manuscripts word for word, okay? And obviously, we have the writings of the Old Testament and the New Testament. We do not have any original manuscripts of any of the books of the Bible. And some would say that, oh, well, that ends it right there. I'm not even going to pay any attention. Why don't we have these original manuscripts anymore? Well, for whatever reason, God has seen fit that none of these things should survive. And I heard one pastor say, and I would tend to agree with this statement, is that if we had original manuscripts of the Bible, the way people are and their propensity to worship things, we would end up worshiping the Bible. And to be quite honest, most people, or I shouldn't say most people, some people actually do hold the Bible in a weird kind of position. You know, it is the word of God and whatnot, but it's pointing to God himself. The book itself isn't the end all be all. As a matter of fact, Jesus said of the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees that you look to the word of God, believing in that in them you have eternal life. But these are the very words that speak about me. So the Bible is meant to point us to the one true God. 
It is not an end-all be-all in of itself. It is a means by which we learn about God. This is how God has revealed himself to us. It would be like basically anybody these days who writes an autobiography or anybody who just writes a biography about another person or individual. And it's this very same thing. It is basically a vehicle by which we are to learn about God and come to worship him in spirit and in truth. The way we learn about the truth is what God has revealed about himself in his word. So we don't have any original manuscripts. So how do we know what we have now is actually what the original authors wrote down and intended? Well, we don't have any original manuscripts, but we have a lot of copied manuscripts. And I'm going to give you some comparisons here about what we have with the Old Testament and New Testament versus some other ancient writings that we would probably say, yeah, we probably, this is probably what, say, Plato or Caesar or Aristotle wrote about their particular writings. Okay. So of the Old Testament, we have about 17,000 either full or partial manuscripts in the Hebrew, which was the original language of the Old Testament. There are about 25,000 either partial or full manuscripts of the New Testament in the Greek, which was the original language of the New Testament. Now, you may be thinking that, well, it doesn't sound like very much, but when you compare it to the next uh, ancient writings that we have the most manuscript evidence for, that would be Homer's Iliad, okay? And that has about 1,900 either partial or full manuscripts. The next one is Caesar's Gaelic Wars, which has about 10, and Aristotle's Poetics, which has about five. So let's think about that for a second. We have 17,000 partial or full manuscripts of the Old Testament, 25,000 either partial or full manuscripts of the New Testament. Homer's Iliad only has 1,900, 1,900. That is a lot of manuscript evidence, and it has been said that the percentage of accuracy for what you have in your modern translation is about a 98 to 99% accuracy transmission, and of those that are supposed contradictions, none of those rests on a major doctrinal position. It could be something like, you know, Jesus is the Christ, or another manuscript might say, Christ is Jesus, or something like that. Some variation in the text that is a little bit different. But there is none that basically says that, uh, that Jesus is God, and then another says Jesus is not God. We don't have anything like that within the manuscript evidence that we have. So there is a lot of extra-biblical or outside-of-the-Bible proofs that we can look to that we can say, this book is indeed the Word of God. So what does it say about itself, though? What does the Bible have to say about itself? Now, I know that that's not a proof text in of itself, but I've given you some reasons why I believe that the Bible is indeed the Word of God from the outside looking in. But of course, we've got to look and see what it says about itself, right? So I'm going to handpick some uh, Old Testament and New Testament verses about what the Bible says about itself. So in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 2, it says, You shall not add to the word which I command you, nor take from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you. So this is basically talking about, obviously, whenever Moses was given the law of God by God himself, Moses wrote it down. So clearly, what he 
heard is what he wrote down, hence the word of God. We learn about what God said to Moses, right? And it was recorded. So that's what the Bible says about that aspect. So in Psalms 119 verses 9 through 11, it says, How can a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed to your word. With my whole heart I have sought you. Oh, let me not wander from your commandments. Your word I have hidden in my heart that it may not sin against you. We have to be able to know what the word of God is, right? In this book, this compendium that we call the book of books or the Bible, we to hide that word in our hearts, we actually have to have the written form written down, right? So we have to understand what scripture is and what scripture isn't, right? So in Psalms 119 verses one, uh, I'm sorry, verse 105, it says, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Again, it's the very same thing of what I just talked about earlier. And it's within the same actual Psalm, uh, just obviously later in that Psalm. In Isaiah 55 verses 10 through 11, it says, for as the rain come comes down and snow from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth and make it bring forth in bud, that it may give seed to the sower and bread to the eaters, so shall my word that goes forth from my mouth, it shall not return to me void, but it shall accomplish what I please, and it shall prosper in the thing in for which I sent it. So how do we know what God says since he's not speaking audibly into the world right now? How do we know what he says? By his word, by what is written down, by what has been transmitted to us. In Daniel chapter 9, verse 24, this you've heard me talk about this a lot if you've listened to this podcast to any degree. It says, 70 weeks are determined for your people in your holy city, and within context, that's the Jewish people in Jerusalem, to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. I think the relevance here is to seal up vision and prophecy. I believe that within these latter days that God has allowed people to understand and know what is the word of God and what isn't and has sealed it up into a compendium we now refer to as the Bible. Okay, so this, I believe, is a fulfillment of prophecy of the end times, of the new covenant, to, to be quite honest, because I believe that the 77's prophecy, which is uh, what many commentators call this particular passage that I just talked about, uh, that this is a new covenant prophecy within the Old Testament writings. Okay, So we're going to fast forward to the New Testament now, what the New Testament has to say about the Word of God. In Romans chapter 15, verse 4, it says, For whatever things were written before were written for our learning, and through we... I'm sorry, let me start that over. For whatever things were written before were written for our learning that we through the patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. So again, how do we know what these things are unless they're written down and unless they're recorded for us and all this and that, right? 2 Timothy 3, chapter 3, verses 16 through 17. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Again, how do we know what that word would be unless we had a compendium knowing what the word of God is? Okay. And in Hebrews 4, uh, chapter 4, verse 12, it says, For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joint and marrows, and is a discerner of thoughts and the intents of the heart. So again, the word of God 
trains us. The Word of God convicts us. The Word of God points us to that which it speaks about, and that is Jesus Christ. And I want to say in final thoughts here that I even used to hold to the view that, you know, how do we know what the Word of God is? This is something that people got together and decided what was the Word of God and what wasn't. How, who are they to say that this is the word of God and this is not. There are some extra biblical writings that are not included in what would be referred to as the canon of scripture, basically meaning that this is the actual official word of God, I guess, if you could say it like that. Um, I heard one pastor say one time, and I think he, he, he pretty much hit the nail on the head. These men did not say what was scripture and what wasn't. They simply looked at or at uh, writings that purported themselves to be the word of God and recognized it as such. You have to remember under the new covenant, the thought and process is, is that Jesus died for our sins and he rose from the dead. And by our having faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ, that we are saved before God and that his spirit then comes and indwells us permanently. This is not something that was done in the Old Testament. The Holy Spirit's ministry in a person's life was extremely temporary. So rightly would David say when he sinned against God, when he committed adultery with Bathsheba, do not take your Holy Spirit from me. That could very well have been the case. I mean, it was definitely the case in the first king of Israel, which was Saul. And it says of that individual, because he disobeyed God, that the Holy Spirit departed from him. That is not the case with any New Testament or New Covenant believer because he permanently indwells us. We are a temple of the Holy Spirit. See also 1 Corinthians chapter 6, that he comes and indwells us permanently. Okay, so that being in mind, if that's the case, then obviously the Holy Spirit is going to tell his people, that's my word, that is not the word. So it's this uh, idea of a spiritual gift called discernment. We can discern which is the word of God and which isn't. So whenever they were trying to canonize which scriptures were scripture and which ones were not, they simply looked at these scriptures and said, that scripture, that isn't. It's as simple as knowing the difference between, between chalk and cheese, seeing the counterfeit from the real document, right? And again, if God is God, he is going to be able to preserve his word. He is going to be able to preserve his writings. He's going to be able to move people at various points in history to be able to do this or that, that we would end up having a compendium of one of the, probably the best-selling book in the Western world, right? Because now we have printing presses. People can go buy a Bible. I used to have 10 Bibles. I mean, I'm not kidding. I uh, did a cleanup here recently of all my books and I gave away some of my Bibles that I had because fundamentally, even with the advent of smartphones, I have two or three Bible apps on my phone with the complete Bible. And I utilize BibleGateway.com to do this podcast. It's a free Bible reader with almost every modern translation available of the Bible. So God has been very active in preserving his word for everybody to see. And realistically speaking, no one is without excuse. I mean, even Romans chapter one. And again, <laughs> as I sit here and quote scripture, in a way, I'm making the case for the Bible because I wouldn't know what in the world 
God has said about this or that had the Bible not been recorded and preserved as it has been. But anyway, in Romans chapter 1, God tells us that even the creation itself is enough to condemn mankind, even though they've never heard about Jesus. Why is that? Because that should moon when they look outside and they see a beautiful sunset or they see the stars at night if they actually live in an area that is, doesn't have dense light pollution where you can actually see it. You see the stars at heaven at night. You see the full moon. You see the, um, the, the hydrological cycle of the water and the rains. And you see a tree. You see a beautiful uh, mountainscape. Um, that should move you to seek out the God who created it. Realistically speaking, everybody knows and understands fundamentally deep down that this world was created. I don't care who you are. I don't care what your bent is. If you believe in evolution, you believe in creation. I believe everybody fundamentally believes that everything was created because whenever I was going through university, we would talk about evolution and I would learn about evolution because obviously you got to know what the other side is talking about, right? If you, even if you disagree with it, you got to know what they're saying. And they would sit here and say, this is evolution's way of making sure yada, 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 whatever their point was. And I was just, I was a Christian by this point. I was a baby Christian. And I was sitting here going, they're attributing creative force to a supposed uh, process. It was, to me, it just struck as a huge contradiction, even in their own worldview, that they were trying desperately to have a worldview where God was not part of it, showing that there is eternity written into our hearts, as the book of Ecclesiastes says, that Again, the word of God tells us that the, there is eternity written in our hearts. We know there's a God. We know we're accountable to him. And that's why I would say my own personal testimony that I felt an impending sense of doom, even though I didn't necessarily want to believe in God because I knew he would hold me to a moral standard and I didn't want to be held to that. I knew deep down that if I died that I would go to hell. Man, my own works would actually send me there. Right. And again, I talked about earlier about how the Bible is not a book that man would write because it puts man in a very hopeless position. We cannot do anything about our relationship with God unless God does something about it because he is the offended party. He is the almighty creator. If he does nothing about our standing before him, he would have been eternally justified. The moment we sin one time, again, as the word of God tells us in Ezekiel 18, 20, the soul that sins shall die. God demands a price be paid for slights made against his character. We don't see God as we should in our modern world. We see him as a cosmic genie. We see him as just somebody, an, an elderly grandfather who just winks at, you know, our little indiscretions. No, these are very highly offensive things that we've done against God. And he is the offended party. So he gets to dictate what happens to us if we violate his character. And he has decreed that he would place his wrath on his son some 2000 years ago. And that it no matter, it doesn't matter at what point in time that a person puts their faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ in his, uh, his death on the cross and resurrection from the dead, that that's efficacious enough to pay for the consequences of your sins. It doesn't matter if I receive Jesus in the 20th century. 
that same righteousness that Jesus lived around, you know, by our modern calendars, zero AD ish, uh, 25 to 30 AD, whenever it was, that that was efficacious enough for me to be able to be seen as righteous before God because he's the offended party. He gets to dictate the terms of reconciliation. And you may be wondering, you may be listening to this as a non-Christian and go, how does that apply to me? How can I grab hold of this thing that you're talking about? And how you do that is coming up in the next segment in just a few seconds. At this point in the podcast, I want to reach out to you. And if you have never done so, if you have never entered into a saving relationship with God through the Lord Jesus Christ, I want to invite you to do that today. All you need to do is believe. Believe that Jesus is who he said he was. He was God in the flesh. Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. Confess him as Lord. And the Bible says that you will be saved if you do that. If you truly believe in your heart that he is who he said he was and that he did exactly what he said he would do for you, you will be saved. It is simply that easy. A lot of people say prayer, prayer. And that's great to confess and put your mind and heart and everything through a process, if you will, to embody what has already taken place in your heart. By simply praying, Lord Jesus, I believe that you died for my sins. I believe in my heart that God raised you from the dead. And now I confess you as Lord. Please take control of my life, and I want to follow you for the rest of my days. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. That's all you need to do, and your life will change. Your life will change not so much materially, not so much in terms of the world, but your life will change in your standing before God in that you may know that you can have eternal life. The Apostle John wrote that when he was pinning 1 John. He said, I write these things to you that you may know that you have eternal life. Not that you can hope, not that you can wonder, but so that you can know. Ephesians chapter 2 verses 8 and 9 says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. I want to thank you so much for listening to my podcast today. If you'd like to get in touch with me for any reason, I have the links for the social networks that I am connected on in my bio for this podcast. I'm also available at Gmail at DisciplePOV, that's D-I-S-C-I-P-L-E-P-O-V at gmail.com. If you have anything that you would like to convey to me, such as something you agree with, something you don't, or anything else, or if you did receive the Lord Jesus Christ into your life, I'd love to hear from you today and to assist you on your new eternal journey.